he is risen indeed. I hope that your hearts were encouraged and challenged as, as mine was, just getting a chance to sing. Um, I am thankful for those who came this morning to serve, and I hope it was a blessing to you. Let's pray, and we will begin our time in God's word together this morning. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your grace. We stand in awe this morning at your glory and your power as you overcame death and sin and the grave itself to bring us salvation. Jesus, be magnified and lifted up in our hearts and in our midst this morning. Give us eyes to see your greatness and your beauty and your glory so that we might be changed. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would illuminate the truth of Scripture today in a way that would leave us marked and different, marked with joy and peace and courage and contentment in the knowledge of all that you have done, all that you are for us. We pray, God, for your blessing now. Amen. The Gospels give us the historical account of the resurrection itself. We read earlier this morning, if you're with us at the beginning, from the Gospel of Matthew, and he tells the story of the women coming to the empty tomb, and the other Gospel authors tell the same story. The book of Acts um, tells us about the preaching of the resurrection. It tells us about how Peter and Paul and the others declared the fact, the truth, of Christ's rising from the grave and turned the world upside down with that preaching. The story of Jesus grew legs, and it spread like wildfire. But it's in the epistles, in the letters of the New Testament, that we find most explicitly the resurrection unpacked. We find the truth of the resurrection explained. We find the meaning of Christ's victory over the grave. And this is crucial because many people around the world today, they know the story. They know, perhaps they've heard that Jesus died for sin and that he rose again. But do we really understand the meaning and the significance of his resurrection? What I would like to do this morning in our time together is to set forth for you, attempt to set forth the meaning of Christ's resurrection. My goal today is to help you to understand This understanding has a goal. It has an intended purpose, an aim. And that aim is not just to inform you, but to strengthen your faith and to deepen your joy. Those things happen as we come to grasp and embrace by faith the meaning of Christ's resurrection. So to do this today, we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll invite you to turn there in your Bibles with me. 1 Corinthians 15 lays out perhaps the most expansive teaching on the resurrection of Christ, and by no means will we plumb its depths today. But I hope to show you and sort of examine the meaning of the resurrection at three different levels. If you're taking notes this morning, this will be our, our three points. First of all, what the resurrection means with reference to Christ, what it tells us about him. Secondly, what the resurrection means for us as the church, those who believe. And then third, what the resurrection means for the cosmos or for creation, you could say. Everything that God has made in his universe. All three levels of understanding are truly necessary. We need to know what the resurrection means for Christ, what it means for us, and what it means for the world. If we neglect any of those three areas, then we're missing some of the fullness of what Christ accomplished in rising from the grave. So what the resurrection means for Christ, and it means this, in one word, if we could summarize what the resurrection means for Christ, you could summarize it with this word, recognition, recognition. Look with me in verses 14 through 19. 
And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The Apostle Paul, in writing this letter, makes a very important argument here. In the context of 1 Corinthians 15, he's addressing the claims of some that there's no such thing as resurrection, that people can't come back to life following their death. And so they're denying any sort of future resurrection for believers. And Paul sort of follows their logic and says, if that's the case, then not even Jesus was raised. And if Jesus wasn't raised, then it means he's not God and he cannot save you and is not worth believing in. In turning this negative statement of Paul's around, we can sort of see one of Paul's foundational assumptions about Christ, that the resurrection proves who Jesus is and proves that his saving work was accepted by God, that it was effective. The content of Paul's preaching, this preaching he mentions is empty or or a waste if Christ isn't raised. The content of his preaching is, is the good news of the gospel. If you look up at verses one through four of this same chapter, Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul's preaching was saturated with the gospel. He said another place that he resolved to know nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. But Paul says, if Christ has not been raised in verse 14, then our preaching, our gospel preaching is in vain. It's in vain. You see, Paul's gospel preaching was not only rehearsing for them the events that happened during the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It was a connecting of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, to all that the Old Testament had said. If you notice in verses 1 through 4, he says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You see, Paul's preaching of the gospel connected Jesus to the Old Testament promises that foretold his death and resurrection. And what this means is that if Jesus did not rise, then he is not the promised Messiah from the Old Testament, as Paul had preached that he was. And he is not the Son of God, as Paul had preached that Jesus was. And he is therefore not able to save you from your sins, as Paul had preached that he is. So if that's the case, then our faith in him, according to verse 17, would be futile, and we would still be in our sins. But, Paul says, if Jesus did rise from the grave, as he will tell us in verse 20, then it's all true. Then Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the Son of God, and he is able to save you. 
You see, it is true that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God when we read the Gospels, and that's a very bold claim if you're not the Son of God. C.S. Lewis famously reasoned that based on Jesus' own words, that he must be either a liar or a lunatic, or he is the Lord. There are no other options. So how could Christ's claim to be God, to be God in flesh, to be the Son of God, how could that claim be verified? Well, in part, that claim was verified by his miracles. Jesus healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He fed the multitudes. Jesus cast out demons and walked on water. He calmed the storm, ruling over creation as only the creator can. And he even raised the dead to life. None but God could do such things. But the ultimate proof of Jesus' divinity, of his divine nature, his godness, is the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ was not just raising someone else back from the dead, a sort of resuscitation because those people would all die again. When Jesus rose from the grave himself in a glorified body, he would never die again. Only God could do this. And it verified that everything Jesus said about himself was true. Jesus had prophesied about himself that he would die and three days later rise again. This points to the truth of his claim, not only to rise again, but his claim to be the son of God. Romans chapter one, verse four says it this way, that Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is exactly what the Jewish leaders were afraid of by the way. It's why they, they placed those two guards at the entrance of Jesus's tomb. In their own words, if the disciples stole his body and staged a resurrection, then the resulting fraud, as they called it, would be even worse than the first. You see, a resurrection, they knew that a resurrection would confirm Jesus as the son of God, and it would threaten to change everything that they knew. And that is, in fact, exactly what happened. Jesus did rise again. And it did change everything because Jesus is the son of God. What does the resurrection mean with reference to Christ? It confirms his deity. He is the son of God. But it also shows his unique role as the Messiah. This, the, the son of God points to not only his deity, but also his role as the anointed one that God had promised to raise up and to establish as king and give him an eternal kingdom. Paul says the gospel is the truth that Jesus rise, or ro- died and rose again in accordance with the scriptures. And those Old Testament scriptures speak often of one who would come, the anointed of God, the Messiah, who would be a king. He would be descended from the line of David and would rule over God's enemies, defeating them and sitting on the throne forever. This Messiah would not be abandoned forever to Sheol, the place of the dead, David writes but would be raised and saved from corruption. And he would have an eternal kingdom. Psalm chapter two, verse seven says this. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Isaiah nine, verse seven says this about the coming Messiah. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. 
And there's so many other places we could go to, to sort of put together a portrait, an Old Testament portrait of the coming Messiah. The resurrection shows that Jesus is this Messiah. He is this beloved son. He is this eternal king. And this is exactly what was confirmed by the resurrection. He is the one who was promised, who has been anointed by God and is destined to reign forever on the throne. The resurrection calls us to recognize that Jesus is truly the Messiah and the Son of God. But the resurrection also shows that, that this saving work that Jesus accomplished on the cross was successful. It shows that his mission truly was accomplished. You see, if Jesus did not rise, Paul reasons, then he did not effectively die for our sins, as verses 3 and 4 claim. Verse 17 says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. It means the death of Christ wasn't enough to redeem you, to cleanse you, to rescue you from the power of sin and make you new. You see, the resurrection itself is part of Christ's saving work. Romans chapter four, verse 25 says, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, speaking of the cross, and raised for our justification. His resurrection is part of his saving work. It shows that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father. As Jesus hangs on the cross on Good Friday, he takes upon his lips the words of Psalm 22 and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason why Jesus suffered this emotional, relational, spiritual anguish is because God the Father was pouring out his wrath on God the Son. So much so that he could identify with the words of David saying, I feel utterly forsaken. But at the resurrection, those words, why have you forsaken me, are changed. You see, God the Father did not answer when God the Son cried out in anguish on the cross. But at the resurrection, the Father did answer. The silence of Good Friday is now filled with the words of the Father as he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's Psalm 110. The resurrection affirms for us the verdict that was given at Jesus' baptism, that this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Isaiah 53 tells us that it pleased the Lord to crush him. But the resurrection shows us that it also pleased the Lord to raise him from the dead. And this shows us the Father has accepted the sacrifice of the Son and Christ's saving work is complete. It is effective. It is enough. His mission has been accomplished. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 says that when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, resurrected and ascended and welcomed to the throne. And it says in verse 13 that Jesus now from the throne is waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That's that messianic promise from Psalm 110. And the author of Hebrews concludes, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The saving work of Jesus was successful. It was accomplished It was finished. And the resurrection confirms not only the identity of Christ, but also his mission and that it is complete. So how do we respond to this truth? How do we rightly recognize all that Jesus is and all that God has done for us through him? 
How do we respond? Well, first of all, I want to speak to those of you this morning who do not know Christ. And I want to call you to believe, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, to believe that Jesus died on the cross for sins and rose again on the third day. And I want to call you to not only believe that those things are true, but to receive him as your Lord, to recognize that Jesus is Messiah, Jesus is King, and to bow before him as your King. Receive him as your King and your Messiah and your Savior. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he is King, and if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved your sins will be forgiven. Your faith will not be futile, but will rather be the means by which you lay hold of the saving grace of God in Christ. Paul says, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Will you cry out to him today and be saved and experience the the saving grace of God, this gift that has been given to us through Christ? You see, there's a reason that the apostles preach the resurrection of Jesus in the book of Acts. This is the power of the gospel. And it's the good news that lost sinners need to hear and that lost sinners must believe. If you're a believer today, how do you respond? How do you rightly recognize who Christ is and what he has done? I want to call you today to rejoice in the display of Christ's glory. There is glory in the cross and in the empty tomb. It is good for us to simply wonder that God himself tasted death on our behalf and then the stone rolled away and he walked out of the tomb. It is good for us to lose sight of self and especially in times like these, to lose sight of our circumstances and simply behold the king in his splendor and his glory and to worship him. We sing at Christmas, worship Christ, the newborn king. And we sing at Easter, worship Christ, the risen King. Allow the glory of the resurrection to drown out all the noise and everything that's around us and even lose sight of self. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. All the things of earth will grow strangely dim. We will worship the risen Christ for all eternity. And by his grace, we get to start worshiping him now. That's what the resurrection means with reference to Christ. He is the son of God, the Messiah, whose saving work has been successful. But what does the resurrection mean for us? What does it mean for the church? This is point number two, and we find it in verses 20 through 23, and we can summarize this in one word as well. What does it mean for the church? Representation. Representation. Look in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. You see, the resurrection is more than just a happy ending for the story of Jesus. Some of you might hear the story and go, wow, that's great for him. Jesus rose again. Wow, what, what, a, what a happy ending for Jesus. But what does this mean for me? Well, this has eternal significance for us. Paul calls Jesus here the first fruits two different times in this text, in verse 19 and in verse 23. What that means 
is that there's going to be more resurrections. Jesus' resurrection was the first of many, the first of its kind, but not the last. Paul explains in verses 21 through 22 that Jesus' resurrection was accomplished in a sense that, in a way that represented us. Christ's victory over death was a representative victory. He did it for us as one of us for our sake. Paul here draws a parallel between Jesus and Adam. Adam was our first representative, and through Adam's sin came death. But Christ comes to represent all who would believe in him, and he brings us life, life instead of death. Look at verses 47 through 49 of the same chapter. Paul writes, The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. That's Adam. The second man is from heaven. That's Christ. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. We, like Adam, are frail, we sin, and we die. And he says, And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Those who are spiritually born again, who have the image of Christ renewed in them, come to share in his nature, his righteousness, and his life. And Paul concludes in verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I love what John Calvin writes concerning this truth. He says, Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. Adam represented us poorly. He failed and brought death. But Christ in his resurrection and in his death and in his life, all of it together, he represents all who believe and brings us life. Despite our natural connection to Adam, despite our human nature, our sin nature, through spiritual union with Christ, we share in his life and in his victory. And therefore, the hope for Christians is that we too will be made alive. Look in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is a passive verb. It means that we are going to experience something. The power is not in us. The resurrection is not some inspiring story that you can overcome your obstacles and that you can triumph. No, the resurrection is the truth that God can overcome any obstacle, especially the obstacle of sin and death, our greatest obstacles. That the power is in Christ, not in us. And that is good news, that we will be one day made alive. In Christ, we have victory over death. I love verses 54 through 57 of this chapter. But we already read verses 54 to 57. I meant verse, oh yeah, 54 to 57, here we go. Paul quotes from the Old Testament again, and he says that when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The same power that raised Christ from the dead will raise us as well. This is victory, and it's found in Christ, our representative, the second Adam, the man from heaven. But notice that this victory and this life and this hope of a future resurrection, this is not for all people without discrimination. 
Rather, it is specifically for those who belong to Christ. Look in verse 23. He says, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Those who belong are those who believe. It is those who have faith who will be raised again at Christ's coming. In John chapter eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus says to this woman, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. This is the promise and the hope of the gospel. In Christ, our sins are atoned for and eternal life is secured. And we experience these things not through our good works, but because of faith in Christ. We believe and we are guaranteed victory and life with him. So how does this truth, this meaning of the resurrection for the church that he represents us, how should this affect our hearts today? Well, first of all, it calls us today to hope and not to despair. Although we live in a world that is still plagued by sin, still ravaged by death and sickness and grief, we have hope. We have hope that Christ is returning and that we will be made alive. Peter speaks of this hope, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a living hope. Christian, do not despair. Your job can dry up. Your health can be ravaged. Your loved ones can even be lost. Your strength physically can be taken away. Your mental abilities can dwindle and become cloudy. But we have a living hope and he has a name. It's Jesus. He is our hope. So do not despair. No matter what happens, we can look at the resurrection that happened and believe that a resurrection is coming and have hope. The resurrection calls us to hope and not despair. And it also calls us to courage instead of fear. Because Jesus is alive, we need not fear. The sting of death, the sting of sin has been taken away, as Paul says. And that's why he can joyfully taunt the powers of darkness and say, where is your power? Where is your sting? We have courage. There is no need for fear. Our hope is that death is only a passing shadow, one that quickly gives way to life and joy and glory. So we need no longer be crippled by fear. We can say with Paul that to die is gain. It is gain because of Jesus. This courage comes not from ourselves. This confidence comes from Christ. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says this about the saving work of Jesus. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, get this, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The the, the death of Jesus accomplishes many things, but among them are this. It rescues us from the fear of death and the crippling and slaving power of that fear. We've been set free by Christ. So have courage and away with fear. I love the song we sing frequently here at our church, In Christ Alone. It helps us to sing this truth. The lyrics of that song say, there is no guilt in life. That's because of the cross. 
and no fear in death. That's because of the resurrection. This is the power of Christ in me. I hope you can sing those words, believing every syllable. No guilt in life. Look at the cross. No fear in death. Look at the empty tomb. This is the power of Christ in me. There's no place for fear of death in the heart of the Christian. Away with fear and courage in Christ. But third, it calls us to rejoice now, to rejoice even in the midst of suffering. The Apostle Paul, the same man who cries out in joy and victory that death has been defeated, he admits that life is still filled with sorrow. But in 2 Corinthians 6.10, he describes himself and his, his fellow laborers as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We do mourn, as 1 Thessalonians says, but not like those who have no hope. Weeping, the Psalms tell us, may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And it comes to us because of Jesus. Many of you are experiencing sorrow right now for many different reasons. Uh, A beloved member of our church right now is in surgery at KU Medical Center. Some of you got the email uh, this morning that Tim Adams suffered what appears to be a stroke about uh, early in the morning around sunrise. I received a call from Roberta. They were taking him to Lawrence Memorial Hospital. And then he's since been transferred to KU Medical Center. Uh, There is sorrow in that. And there is pain in that. We weep for our brother and for our sister, Roberta, and we pray for them and we're asking for God's mercy. But we are able to rejoice even in the midst of our sorrow and our suffering. I spoke with Roberta this morning and she's not afraid. And she's smiling even as the tears come to her eyes because she believes in Christ and she knows that Tim does as well. He was not able to to say much. He couldn't speak, but he did say that he loved her and he loved Jesus. That's all he was able to say. But there's joy in that. There's a sweetness in the sorrow because of Christ, because we know that even if God chooses to take our brother Tim home this morning, and even if Roberta has to enter into a new challenge in life, life as a widow, we know that Christ has overcome. And his victory means victory for us. It means joy for us. So we can weep and we can sorrow, but not like those who have no hope. If you are in sorrow today and sadness today, The resurrection of Christ means that you can and must rejoice. Rejoice in the victory of Jesus. So the resurrection means that we recognize Christ, his deity, his divinity, his saving power. But it also means that he has represented us, the church, those who believe share in his life. But there's more. There's more. Third, what does the resurrection mean for the cosmos, for all of creation? Again, we can summarize this in one word. And it is rain, rain, not, not the rain that has been falling in the last 24 hours here, not R-A-I-N, rain, but the reigning of a king. Jesus reigns and he will reign. Look in verse 24. After mentioning the coming of Christ in verse 23, the return of Jesus to earth, verse 24, Paul writes, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But, what, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, 
then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. The resurrection marks the beginning of a triumphant march to full and complete victory. It is a key step in the unfolding of God's plan to redeem not only a people, but to, but to renew the entire creation. Jesus is coming back, as verse 23 says. A dead Christ can't return, but our Savior lives and is going to come again. Jesus came. He was born. He lived. He died. He rose again. He ascended to heaven and has promised to return And at his coming, Paul says, a whole series of events are going to unfold. And the resurrection is important for this reason. If Jesus stayed dead, none of those events could happen. The rest of God's plan could not be worked out. It would be over. The story would be done. But Jesus is alive. And the fact that he's coming back means he has unfinished business. Paul reminds us that Jesus is going to defeat his enemies, all of them. And he's going to establish his kingdom over all. It speaks here. There's a lot of pronouns here, him and he, and you can sort of get lost uh, along the trail if you're not paying close attention. But the father is going to subject all things under the feet of the son. And when all things have been brought into subjection under the reign and rule of Christ, then Christ himself will present himself and the kingdom to the father so that, Paul concludes, God may be all in all. It's an amazing and glorious end to the story. And it shows us that the living Christ is not done conquering. He's not done conquering. All his enemies will be judged, as Psalm 2 tells us. Political enemies, judged. Physical enemies, judged. Spiritual enemies, judged. Even death itself, Paul says, destroyed. Death has already been defeated. It's power broken. But one day, death itself will be eradicated, fully destroyed by the power of the risen Christ. And then all things will be handed over to the Father. The Father grants this victory to the Son. And now the Son delivers the kingdom to the Father so that he may be all in all. This is what Paul writes of in Romans 11 when he says, from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be honor and glory and power forever. Amen. This future vision of God being all in all is really the picture of fullness. It is completion. It is glory. The end of all things, as all things are brought into peace and the shalom of the Old Testament under the righteous reign of Christ, it's going to mark really a new beginning. Uh, the beginning of a new heaven and a new earth where God's goodness and his glory will be enjoyed by redeemed people in a renewed creation where the risen Christ reigns to the glory of God the Father. You see, the resurrection is not just a happy ending for Jesus. And it's even more than good news for us individually that we will rise again. The resurrection affects everything. Everything in the cosmos, everything in the creation is going to be touched by this, the power of the risen Christ. It tells us, the resurrection tells us that death is defeated and will be destroyed. That Jesus is alive and will reign. That God has kept his promises and will keep his promises. That the powers of darkness have been put to shame and it is only a matter of time until Jesus returns.
and brings all things under his righteous rule. The resurrection truly holds significance for the whole cosmos, for all of creation. It tells us that Jesus reigns and will reign. I love the old hymn that says, Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. That's a truth to sing about and to rejoice in. How do we respond to this truth? We do just that. We rejoice in it and we rest in this promise. We rest. Right now in a time where our society has ground to a halt and we're all stuck at home, many of you probably feel restless. You feel powerless. You want to do something, but you can't do anything. This truth that Christ is returning and making all things new and that he will reign, it calls us to rest to rest in the promise that every enemy, including death, will be destroyed. We can rest today, this Easter, in the victory of Jesus. We can have peace today because Jesus has overcome and will overcome. It's not up to us, praise God, to overcome by our own power. It is ours to rest in his victory and his power and his promise. So today, as you think about the resurrection and what it means for the cosmos, rest in the promise. But this truth that Jesus will reign also calls us to persevere, to to resolve to trust him and to keep trusting him and to wait on him alone. I, I love how Paul concludes this chapter in verse 58. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, after laying out this massive, expansive teaching on the resurrection of Christ, he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. In a spiritual sense, in an emotional sense, we rest in Christ. But when it comes to our faith and our obedience, we seek to persevere to always abound in the work of the Lord because we believe in the promise that Christ is coming back and he will reward his children and bring in his kingdom so we know that our labors today are not in vain. So resolve today to persevere. Keep looking to Christ in faith. Keep waiting on him. Keep serving him. Faith is active as we've seen in the book of James. Faith fights. Faith perseveres. And our resolve to persevere, our faith in this promise is going to be strengthened today as we remember Christ's resurrection and fix our eyes not only on what he did coming out of the tomb, but on what he will do when he returns to reign in power forever. The resurrection declares authoritatively that Jesus is the son of God, that he is the Messiah and his saving work is effective and has been accepted by the father. Christ truly is God and Savior and King. But the resurrection also means that all who believe in him will one day rise as well to be like him, that we will share in his life and in his glory. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, though we die, yet we shall live. And the resurrection finally means that the plan of God to renew his creation is underway. There is more to come. The risen King Jesus will soon establish his kingdom and will bring all things under his gracious rule to the glory of God the Father. This is the meaning of the resurrection for Christ and for the church and for the whole cosmos, all of creation. Do you see it today? 
Do you see it? And do you feel the weight and the joyful heaviness of glory in this truth? Do you understand? Has this truth of scripture um, illuminated your heart and led you today to faith and to joy and to hope? I pray that it has. That's one of the reasons Jesus did it. And it's why we have these truths is to strengthen our faith and deepen our joy and to firm up our resolve to keep trusting and keep serving as we wait for his return. I pray that today you've been moved to worship Christ, to trust in him and to rejoice in hope as we look eagerly to his return. He is risen today and that changes everything. It changes everything. God, thank you for your word and for how it unpacks for us this glorious event of the resurrection. Jesus, we believe that you died on the cross for sins according to the scriptures and that you were buried and that you were raised again according to the scriptures. We believe that you are the son of God. You are his Messiah and you have brought salvation to all who believe. God, I pray that you would help us to to rejoice today in hope, knowing that we will share in the resurrection. Lord, take away fear, take away despair. Help us to rejoice even in the midst of our sorrows and our suffering as we believe the promise that we too will be made alive. And God, I pray that you would also help us to rest in the promise that your son is going to return, that he will reign. All his enemies brought under his feet, death itself destroyed, and all will be handed over to the Father, that you, Father, may be all in all. God, we long for that. We long for that today with an ache in our soul as we look around us and consider the brokenness of this world, as we consider with an ache in our soul the sin that we still carry in our own selves. Lord, we long for that day. And we look forward to the privilege and the joy it will be to worship our risen Savior face to face, face to face as we stand in your glorious presence. God, strengthen our faith today. And for those who do not know you, I pray that today they would understand the meaning of the resurrection, that they would believe, believe in Christ, trust in Christ, and come to share in this hope and joy that we have in him. Amen.